0: you're listening to the eyes on conservation podcast episode 107 Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife and conservation issues from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today's guest on the show is Dea Schlossberg. Dea is an extremely talented filmmaker who was unexpectedly arrested after documenting a civil disobedience action in Northern North Dakota back in October of 2016. There was a wave of arrests of journalists connected with pipeline protests in the fall of 2016, but Dea's arrest really shook the filmmaking world because she was charged with three counts of conspiracy and was facing a maximum penalty of 45 years in prison without having actually committed a single crime. I was one of the filmmakers impacted by this spate of arrests and by Dea's story, and it actually inspired me to to travel out to Standing Rock and get involved in covering these types of issues here on the podcast. So I'm extremely excited to have Dea on as a guest uh, for today's show. In addition to her recent work covering issues related to oil pipelines and civ- civil disobedience action, she was also a producer on Josh Fox's most recent film, How to Let Go of the World and Love All the Things Climate Can't Change, which, in my opinion, is one of the most powerful climate change films to be released in the past few years.
1: I'm Dea Schlossberg. I am a filmmaker. I focus on stories that are at the intersection of human rights and climate change. In my current projects and development, I'm leaning more on the human rights side, but they're so interconnected, it's hard to divide those two things.
0: That's something that that I've been exploring a lot here and that's kind of the sort of the the future direction that that I'm trying to sort of steer this podcast in is sort of showing folks how interconnected this topic of conservation is with so many other issues. But I mean, human rights and civil rights sort of like as a central component of that. So you're a filmmaker with a particular interest in covering uh, climate change issues. And and like you said, sort of these connections that exist between this issue and uh, human rights, civil rights, lots of other issues. It's a very broad scope of topics. And uh, this work that you do has gotten you into some trouble in recent months. I'm going to start right off here uh, with having you explain sort of uh, what happened on on October 11th um, when you were arrested in North Dakota um, filming sure. a group of climate change activists. Can you can you set the stage uh, of this action that that you were covering for us?
1: Sure. Um, so there were a group of activists that felt like they had taken all the legal actions they could throughout their lives to combat. Climate change, and this was a group of people who felt like they were kind of at the legal limits of what of what individuals can do, going through all the the mainstream kind of routes. And then it wasn't enough. We keep having the hottest year on record every year. We keep having the hottest month on record every month. This particular group of people, and I would tend to agree, would would say that we are in a climate emergency and if we don't act very quickly things will will continue to get worse i mean we just saw that tornadoes came through the south killed some folks and devastated a large area but anyway this group decided that the the most effective thing they could do as individuals was to to shut down all of the tar sands coming into the united states for a day um so they found the The five pipelines that bring all Canadian tar sands into the U.S. and it's across four different states and five people went into the emergency shutoff valve enclosures for five of these pipelines and turned the emergency, emergency shutoff valves, effectively stopping all oil sands coming into the U.S., which the... White House called the largest or most effective targeted act upon environmental-related infrastructure or fossil fuel-related infrastructure. So I, as somebody who documents things related to climate and having covered a lot of pipeline-related, fossil fuel-related stories in the past, felt that it was important to cover this action. Uh, So I went to North Dakota, and the, the actions were happening in... Washington, Montana, North Dakota, and then two pipelines in uh, Minnesota. And I covered the North Dakota action. And I was filming the gentleman shutting down the pipeline from a public road. So the, the group called each of the companies that own the pipelines before they did this to tell them that they were going to do this so that the the companies could take any um, emergency safety precautions needed. Uh, they didn't want to create more damage. They wanted to stop damage being done. Um, so they gave them a heads up, um, and then went in and turned the valves off. Um, these valves are in place so that, like, local fire departments and stuff can go and and turn off the pipelines if there is a spill, if there is an explosion. You know, they're there for safety. So this wasn't a radical and dangerous act these people were using the, the emergency shutoffs that the companies themselves put in place i filmed the whole action
0: what what did that look like you know i mean where in north dakota were you like what did, i mean what 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 did sort of your surroundings look like and i mean you know what what were you sort of like hoping to document i mean it, in in sort of a certain context it's a really dramatic action to take right to to sort of shut yeah. you know uh, pull the emergency valves for all these pipelines simultaneously. And, and like you said, you know, cut off the supply of tar sands into the US uh, over this vast area. But at the mm-hmm. same time, like just thinking about it, like as a filmmaker, you know, right. I mean, what were you hoping to shoot? What Like what, you know, what were you hoping to, to get? I mean, the guy just pulls yeah. a lever and then walks away and you're like, all right, we did it. I mean, uh, yeah. were, were you anticipating like the police to show up? I mean, what what were you sort of, thinking about or sort of planning, uh, leading up to this?
1: In a way that's that's kind of what I wanted to capture the, the non, <laughs> um, how, how non-dramatic it was and how, I guess how simple it is to just say, no, we don't, we don't have to, to use this. Um, the reality is it, it wasn't all that dramatic visually. Michael, who the, the activist's name was, who was on the site where I was basically went, with a pair of bolt cutters, uh, this was it was a site in the middle of farmland, rural areas, broken up by um, tree breaks, you know, county roads and dirt roads and and farmland mostly. There was a chain link enclosure. Michael went up to the enclosure with with a pair of bolt cutters, cut the little padlock on the on the gate, went inside the mm-hmm. enclosure, cut the padlock on the chain. Keeping the the valve crank in one place um, and started turning. It took him quite a while for it to kick in before he could, you know, feel any sort of resistance or hear anything. But it became it became obvious that he was having an effect. It, it, it did start to get louder, and he said it was that it was shaking. And we knew that the police would show up because they had called the company and said they were doing that and we knew the company had called the police they in no way wanted to hide any of what they were doing they were completely transparent about it and why they were doing it um so they weren't you know trying to evade the cops or hide anything so they just waited for the cops to come um and yeah and so i was i was there just capturing all of this i wasn't exactly sure where it would end up, but I knew as a, as a significant act that I wanted to have it documented, even if it wasn't going to be glorious visually, I felt it was important. Um, and, and yeah, so the cops did come, they told Michael he was under arrest, put him in the cop car. There was another guy there who was acting as the support person. So he Figured when Michael got arrested, he would go arrange bail and pick him up from the police station and and be support in that sense. Um, he had also been taking some pictures. He had planned to live stream the shutting down, but we were out of service, so that didn't happen. Um, so he just took some pictures with us. And after they had arrested Michael, they came over and told him he was under arrest. That was a little unexpected, but not a shock and after they arrested him they came to the car i was i was sitting in the car it was super cold and my hands were numb from having filmed it but they came they came over to the car and told me uh you are under arrest for being an accessory to a crime and i said well i was i was filming it i am a member of the media i was on public roads it is my right to film and they weren't having it and said no you're you're an accessory to this crime and you're under arrest and took us all into the local police station, split us up. And, and the whole time I was waiting, they were questioning the other guys. I was thinking like, all right, like I'll, when they come in and talk to me, I'll just explain further. There's been a mistake. (laughs) 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 uh, I, I researched, um, before doing this and was very clear not to, not to break any laws. I was very aware of what the, the risks were. And I, you know, very carefully eschewed those, <laughs> those pitfalls so that I was in, in total compliance with the law, but they, <laughs> they booked me.
0: <laughs> um, I mean, going into this, like, did you think there was any chance that, that this could be a potential outcome?
1: Um, you know, I thought, getting arrested might be a potential outcome. I did not think getting charged would be an outcome, um, because I knew that I didn't break any laws. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, at that point it got a little surreal. Um, They had me put all my possessions in a drawer, gave me the orange jumpsuit, and shitty little jail mattress to carry into the cell. And that was it. They didn't really tell me anything. Um, and it, it was a small county jail. I was the only female. So I was by myself in my cell and, and um, cell block. Yeah, I, I was alone. And I had no way to contact anybody, no nothing. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't tell me anything. They didn't give me any information. It was um, It was pretty scary. I was in there for a few days. Um, and it took, it took a full day before, uh, I was really able to talk to anybody. Uh, my fiance was on um, outside, um, back here in New York calling around frantically trying to figure out what was going on and how to get in touch with me. And, um, and he learned that he could go through the, the jail system and buy me a calling card. And that. And, and get some numbers for me and so eventually that information was delivered to me and I started calling like crazy. Um just frantically whoever I could get a hold of and ask them to do research and look up lawyers and figure out numbers and see what was happening and they were all they all they were all asking me, What's happening? What's going on? And I had no information. I was just completely isolated in there. After a couple of days um, I mean, they, they, they're only allowed to hold people 48 hours technically before telling them what they're charged of and, and, um, having bail hearings and stuff. And it had been longer than that. And I didn't know what was going on. And, um, apparently because of everything that was happening at Standing Rock, uh, North Dakota was in a state of, of emergency and they don't have to follow those same guidelines. It it made me very aware of, the absolute authority that our institutions can have over us as citizens. And it was, it was terrifying. So it it was a little over the full two days when they, when they came and said, all right, here are your charges. And they cuffed me and brought me to the, to the court. I was holding the the piece of paper with the, the charges in my hand, reading through it. And the first one was, Conspiracy to theft of a public service. um, Class one felony, uh, maximum potential sentence, 20 years. Second charge, conspiracy to damage a public utility, class one felony, maximum sentence, 20 years. Third one was another conspiracy charge that was a misdemeanor with a maximum sentence of five years. So here I was... Holding in my hand something telling me I was charged with felonies and misdemeanor that totaled forty five years maximum sentence um, for filming an action from a public road, and I, I, you know, I lost my shit. <laughs> I was, uh, I just, I was just like shaking and sobbing, and just saying, I just kept saying, "This is, this is insane. This is insane." I mean, my whole life just felt like it was just being stolen from me um and walked into the courtroom and the state pro- prosecutor said because you know I had been nice basically they <laughs> they uh were reducing the bail and they weren't worried about me um running or doing anything so they said I could pay Ten percent of the the five thousand dollar bail, and I went back to my cell and started making more phone calls, explaining what had happened. Um, I talked to a couple of lawyers that were both like, "Oh, we weren't expecting that." <laughs> <laughs> um, that's pretty. It's pretty stiff. Um, <laughs> But, yeah, I mean, over how long was it? It was still a little while after that that the, the bail was paid and all the, the paperwork went through, and then they let me out. And, yeah, I, it, was, <laughs> it was all just so surreal. Yeah, I got on the phone with, with my lawyer pretty quickly. I've never had a lawyer before, but <laughs> um, <laughs> I've never even had detention before. Like, this was just this was so... <laughs> This is so out of out of control, new territory. (laughs) I actually had two lawyers because out of state lawyers can't work with can't can't you know operate in another state without working with a local lawyer. Um, And and both of them were amazing. My New York lawyer is was uh, Ron Kuby, who's pretty famous from civil rights cases um historically and has been in several movies and he's kind of a big deal (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and he took it on because I think he was kind of entertained by it but he was he was fantastic and he definitely made me feel better that just in the absurdity of it and that we would fight this and and um we'd we'd figure it out yeah I, I you know I was just you know hanging out hanging out in this little town in Northern North Dakota, just, uh, I I had no idea what to do, where to go. Like (laughs) it it was pretty isolating. And then it didn't take long for it to kind of blow up in terms of press and media. And so the, the film that I had, had just finished working on was, um, Josh Fox's third film in the Gasland series, How to Let Go of the World and Love All the Things Climate Can't Change. Um, we had spent two years, well, more than two years, working on this this film. Um, you know, it went to Sundance. It was on HBO. Josh has, like, huge social media following, and he was actually in the U.K. touring with the film doing um, the – I think he was at the London opening when he found out what, what the situation that I was in um, and he went on live streaming talking about my situation and, and that, that kind of spread around Facebook and stuff like crazy. And then I, I started getting calls from reporters and news, news agencies and um, like journalism protection organizations and members of Congress and just people, <laughs> all sorts of people reaching out because it, it, I mean, had the potential to be such an enormous First Amendment case. Yeah, a lot a lot of people became interested really quickly. And that was like a, a whole like opposite end of the spectrum craziness that I was also not used to. <laughs> being in, in front of people talking about my my own situation and my own experience. Yeah, I mean being a filmmaker and, and sharing other people's stories and being behind the camera, it was wasn't the most comfortable thing for me, but I was aware the whole time that I had this this really huge and and powerful platform all of a sudden, and there had been other arrests. There had been a lot of arrests recently at Standing Rock. Um, other journalists, filmmakers, had had been arrested for documenting what was happening at Standing Rock, including Amy Goodman of Democracy Now and. Um, Shailene Woodley was there and she was live streaming when she was arrested. There were a lot of questions all of a sudden about um, First Amendment rights in North Dakota and First Amendment rights in relation to um, fossil fuel infrastructure. In addition to me being arrested on that day in conjunction with that action, two filmmakers in Washington state covering, covering the valve turning there, Lindsay Grazel and Carl Davis, were arrested and charged with felonies, and then after the fact, the the filmmaker in Minnesota was mailed charges, trespassing charges. So you know, within the span of a couple of weeks, there were all of these people from the media reporting on these things and being arrested with the same charges as the people that were um, acting. So that alarmed a whole lot of people, especially, you know, in the in October leading up to the election. And there was already a lot of talk about the role of media and freedom of the press and real news. And um, to have to have people on the ground documenting firsthand being seemingly targeted um, seemed to be sending a message. Um, and whether it was, you know, designed that way, orchestrated that way, I don't know. But it, it came off that way for sure for,
0: for us. There was, there was like this, this two or three week period where it seemed like every day there was another uh, sort of news story about a journalist covering some form of, of pipeline protest that mm-hmm. was getting arrested, right? And it was, I mean, yeah, I mean, that that had a significant Impact on me, you know. I mean, yeah. it, it, it scared the shit out of me, you know. <laughs> I mean, it all it's <laughs> like all of a sudden this realization of like, wow, like you could totally be arrested just for doing your job, as you said, and like even if you yeah. do your research as you did and and you know are very cautious and make sure that you're not actually breaking any laws, like doesn't necessarily mean that you're not going to be um, arrested and and and, and penalized yeah. for for your role in that. Um, and I mean, to be honest, it directly inspired me to to go out to Standing Rock and, and to spend a few days there and, and to get involved in, in covering what was going on out there.
1: You know, people were asking me, do you think your story is going to keep other filmmakers and, and journalists from, from covering these things? And I said, um, you know, I think it's kind of going to do the opposite. <laughs> so I'm glad to, I'm glad to hear that you you went out there after knowing all this that people are just so in in disbelief that this could be happening and wanting to know more and so going and and finding out being a journalist being a reporter to get the truth that makes
0: me happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I don't think you know, I'm I'm cer- I'm certainly not alone in that, right? I mean, um, yeah. I mean, to be honest, I was you know, I, I was only able to spend a short period of time uh, out at Standing Rock, but I mean, I was totally blown away by many aspects of of what I saw and what was going on. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, something that stood out was you know the 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 number of journalists and and reporters who were there and yeah. who uh, had sort of converged um, on this location coming from all around the U S um, and all -hmm. around all around the globe really. And, you know, I mean, such a wide variety of people. Right. And I mean, I think there was this feeling of solidarity, you know, amongst people who, you know, this is what they do as a profession, whether they're filmmakers or journalists in a more traditional sense or, or, or whatever, you know? Um, so, I mean, I, it definitely, it it definitely had an impact in that sense. Um, you talked about, you know, this this sort of series of arrests that seemed like they were connected and, and all happened within a short period of time. I mean, obviously, we can only speculate about, you know, the level mm-hmm. of sort of orchestration of that or whether that was intentional yeah. or just you know right. sort of sort of coincidence. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I imagine that you've spent a fair amount of time sort of speculating on, on like the true reasoning behind your arrest. Right. But let me ask this. I assume that you never got your footage back. <laughs> Is that a safe assumption?
1: Uh, that's a safe assumption. They said they would make uh, duplicate copies for me at least so I could have footage. Um, they still haven't done that. They told me that they were keeping it in evidence for the other trials, the trials of the two guys that were arrested with me, and those are happening in February. So presumably I will be getting that back after their their trials.
0: The first place that my mind goes, right, is like it it feels like an obvious attempt to make sure that that information doesn't get out to to the wider public, right? Like you have, like you documented this effort, you know, you were going to share this uh, Mm -hmm. uh, content that that you had captured and, you know, the police who showed up had an opportunity to sort of stop that, say like, no, we don't want this footage to get out there um, because we don't want this activity, this um, illegal activity to sort of to get the exposure that that, that they're looking for. Right. Yeah. I mean, is that, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't even know like what my question is there. I mean, I'm just like, uh, kind of thinking out loud. Like, I mean, is yeah,
1: that's one of the possibilities that I had considered. Um, and yeah, it is all, it is all speculative and it's a little tricky too, because it was a different, uh, jurisdiction and different prosecutor than, than was at Standing Rock um so i mean i think it's it's easier to to make assumptions there um when when all the arrests were you know morton county department arrests and the the same the same team and same person making the decisions to of of who we get arrested and what people get charged with um that they would have something some you know objective in mind but this was, um, you know, this was a few counties away and they, they were asking repeatedly if this was connected to Standing Rock, if this had anything to do with, with Standing Rock, if it was directed by people there, anything like that. I know it was top of their minds, but yeah, I, I don't know how much they were actually in, in communication with law enforcement down there. It certainly feels more and more 1984 as moving into the new administration and and with all this freshly in mind. The other point, though, that this all brought up for me was that people are questioning, well, like, are you a real journalist? And you're a filmmaker. You don't have the same rights that the press has. And then there are all these people that were, like Shailene, live streaming and documenting as kind of citizen journalists. And I've since been working on a, a film with some folks ab- about Standing Rock, and I they have footage of the cops asking them, "Well, you're are you news? Like, what what agency are you with? What are where are your credentials? Like," and because of the you know because of the media landscape right now, there is a blurring of who is media, who is news. And when the news is dominated by like talking heads and pundits and people speculating and people on the ground are reporting firsthand live events, like which, which of those things is more actual news? Um, and the, the bigger question there is should, I mean, should individual citizens be denied freedom of speech and be denied the right to, to record and be denied basic First Amendment coverage, it it becomes less about press and more about every citizen's fundamental rights.
0: It puts all this stuff in a different context, right? Because there is this, I mean, it's a lot of gray area, right? I mean, anybody can be a journalist, anybody, you know, who has a cell phone and the ability to sort of live stream or even just capture capture video footage or audio or, or anything, I mean, Mm-hmm. Bam, you're a journalist, right? I mean, w- one of the things that that really stood out to me, the, the one action that that I went out on and, and documented during the time that, that I was at Sandy Rock, um, it, it, it took place in Bismarck. Um, mm-hmm. and it was covered by traditional, journalists right like the local like local abc news uh uh, reporters were there and you know it was very obvious that they were uh sort of traditional style journalists right like you could tell they had like a thousand different badges attached to them you know so that the police could very obviously tell like hey i'm a legit journalist i'm not one of these you know crazy people that's just following the protesters around right yeah because of that i mean i actually felt Really safe, right? Like I felt like there was no, there was no chance that that these police were going to start arresting the people who were covering this action because of that. But like the vast majority of the actions that have taken place, you know, revolving around Standing Rock, like don't have that, right? Like right. These, your local ABC News reporter who's going to be you know on the evening news in Bismarck, like he's not driving down to. To Standing Rock no. every day to cover sort of the daily actions that are happening you know on the ground like at the site where the pipeline yeah. where they're trying to, to to build the pipeline but like that's more important right I mean yeah. and, <laughs> so it's like who's the real journalist right yeah. um and, and and then you talk about like how okay you have this you know this reporter who is like seen for sure by the police as like a legitimate journalist, right? But like, how many people is this guy reaching? Like how many people are watching, you know, the local ABC news affiliate, you know, at 10 o'clock that night versus how many people are watching the live stream, you know, from the Standing Rock tribal member Who's just he was just had his camera and he's just holding it out like while he was giving one of his speeches during the protest, and I would bet that more people were watching that live stream than the oh, people yeah. who watched like the local a b c news in Bismarck that night, you know, mm-hmm. so it's like yep. who's the real journalist, you know, yeah, yeah, and
1: the people at the bridge on that night of the worst attacks there, I don't know what the what the total number was, but I was watching that go down on somebody's live stream. And it was just thousands and thousands, and and yeah, everybody was, was tuned in. I think I'm really glad that because of this election cycle, people are asking all these questions of the media and of truth, and I think people are hungry for primary sources and people being, you know, on the ground. So there are less degrees of, of interpretation and separation between the truth of a situation and... And what the public is learning about it.
0: So, getting back to this question that I I sort of threw at, at you of like you know how can we speculate about sort of what was going through the mind of these law enforcement uh, officers who arrested you right and they're you know I mean we can spec like we don't know this for sure right we don't know if it was a coordinated effort or not you know they yeah. they may have been you know their mindset may have been like we just want to get this footage so that it can't get out um, but in reality like what they did by arresting you was they blew this whole issue up right, yeah, right <laughs> like it right. totally backfired yep. um and you know as a result of what happened the the action that you were covering got a ton more coverage <laughs> than it would have otherwise right uh, so i mean it's it's almost like the these folks are sort of stuck in this this older mindset and and sort of you know aren't aware or maybe they're learning the hard way, you know, what the best way to sort of quash these actions might be. And of course, who knows what would have happened in your situation? um, If we didn't live in this sort of new era of social media, um, where, you know, Josh Fox can go live stream from London and, you know, Mm -hmm. share with his like, thousands and thousands of followers, like, you know, what happened to, to, to you, um, and, and sort of, you know, get the ball rolling and like spread the word and it snowballs. And now, you know, it, Mm -hmm. it it sort of blows up, like you said, like, who knows what, what would have happened if like that hadn't been possible, um, Right. right. But that was possible and that did happen. And at this point, it seems like there's, there's no way that, that, um, they can follow through on these charges because it would just take it to the next level and and explode, you know, backfire sort of in their faces even worse. So, I mean, uh, I, I guess at, at this point, like, maybe you can tell us, like, what the current status of, of your case is and where you expect things to go from here.
1: So a month or six weeks or so ago, they, uh, they being North Dakota, agreed to suspend my charges, essentially putting them on the back burner. So... They have they have a lot of other charges they're dealing with right now. So they agreed that they would put mine aside, and as long as I didn't commit a crime or have possession of a firearm, that was kind of a random addition they put in there, that after six months my charges would be dropped and my record would be cleared. Mm-hmm. So until May, basically, I can't get <laughs> arrested and charged and convicted with with the crime. So I I, um, I don't plan on doing any of those <laughs> things. <laughs> Though I didn't plan on this one happening. Um, so on one hand, I feel really fortunate that this is in all likelihood going to go away. But on the other hand, like I haven't gone to Standing Rock to report when I've wanted to because I am afraid of going back to North Dakota and... You know, getting swept up in something else. Forty five years worth of charges is a lot to hanging a lot to have hanging over my head. It hasn't kept me from, from talking and speaking out about things, but, but yeah, it has made me reluctant to, to go and be part of anything where there's a potential to get arrested.
0: Right. And I yeah. mean that's your job, right? I mean and that's it's, my like, job. it's it's essentially yeah. preventing you from, from, from doing your job, right? Yeah. A certain aspect yeah. of it.
1: Right. And that's really disturbing. And I don't want I don't want to let it limit me like that, but yeah, that's kind of the reality that I'm that I'm in until May.
0: Yeah. So, how about the the other mm-hmm. activists that that were involved in in that action that you were documenting? What what what's the status of of their charges?
1: They are all um, coming up on their trials soon. Um, the first one was supposed to be starting on Monday, um, and that was Ken out in Washington. Um, the one that Lindsay was filming where where she was also arrested. Um, And I've actually teamed up with her. Um, She's been making a movie about Ken for years. This is like kind of the the end of the story that she's covering in that film is is this action and and the the court case. But he and the other valve turners are planning to argue the necessity defense whenever, whenever possible, whenever they're allowed to. Um, which which is basically saying they they have taken all legal steps to alleviate this huge problem and it hasn't worked. And so they've taken the next step. It's kind of like a, a lesser evil kind of defense. The simplest analogy is like if there's a burning building and you know somebody's inside, you, you break the law and you trespass. You break and enter to go save somebody inside the burning building and, and rescue them that's kind of the the argument they're making with with the necessity of defense here saying it was necessary to you know trespass and interfere with private property they're saying public infrastructure but in order to to prevent worsening global climate change there's a, a set of parameters that they have to to meet in order to be able to argue that defense and that's all you know happening in the next few weeks so there will be Um, hopefully a lot of, a lot of coverage of that. Um, Ken's, yeah, Ken's is supposed to start Monday, but we'll see, um, there might be some scheduling changes and then Michael's is, is also supposed to be happening in the next couple of weeks. They're all coming up pretty quickly here. And as long as I'm on the the record here and this is going out to people, I'd love to share the website to find out more about their cases and, and keep up to, up to speed and possibly support them. Um, Shut it down. Today is yeah where all the info is.
0: Awesome, yeah, and I can definitely um, I can share that that link on cool. the show notes page for this episode as well, so folks um, can have access to that and can follow. Cool. Um, what's going on there which is super fascinating i mean i i would imagine that it has the potential to set a precedent right for which, exactly. which would be extremely important for future cases and 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 also for folks you know activists who are planning future actions like that as well um it's so.
1: it's huge it's absolutely huge it would be i mean as you said precedent setting like in, in legally and morally ethically yeah really significant
0: You've mentioned Standing Rock a few times. You were in North Dakota when this craziness went down that you just told us about, and you know you you talked a little bit about how you know it was clear that like the arresting officers like had Standing Rock at the forefront of their mind um, when they showed up. You got some questions about whether or not this action was connected to Standing Rock. I mean, was it? Was there a connection? I mean, obviously there's like a connection, like. Big picture, like, conceptually, right? Right. But was there, I mean, was there anything beyond that?
1: Um, well, the the day before, folks at Standing Rock had called out for for a day of action in solidarity. So that did have an impact on the timing of this action and the messaging of this action. It was done in solidarity. It, mm-hmm. it was done as part of the same fight.
0: Mm-hmm. Have you spent time at Standing Rock? You mentioned that you have sort of been wanting to, 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 <laughs> to go there since your arrest, but, you know, have for obvious reasons, like, felt right. that, that that was too risky. Uh, I mean, did you have a chance to uh, spend any time there before this happened?
1: No, I actually was um, thinking about heading out there after covering this action that I was arrested for. I thought, I'll spend a couple of days in in northern North Dakota, I'll film this, and then I'll Head over to Standing Rock and cover that, <laughs> uh, but yeah, that didn't go as planned. So uh, I didn't—I did not actually get out there.
0: You mentioned that you are currently working on a film that has some connections to, to Standing Rock and, and what's been going on out there. Um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the. This, the, the film project you're working on and sort of what, I mean, I mean what, what sort of the central theme of, of this, the story that you're working on and at, at what stage are you at?
1: Sure. Well, there, there are a couple projects that are kind of related to this. Um, the first I'm, I'm a producer on, it's not my film at all. It's, a it's a piece that Josh, um, is putting together, but it's, it's three filmmakers, um, with, kind of their three different experiences at Standing Rock tied together kind of um, thematically and a little bit stylistically um, into one film. And it's, it's their pieces by Josh Fox, uh, James Spione, and uh, Myron Dewey, who is an indigenous reporter. They fit together really beautifully. They all approach the events very, very differently, but it, they fit together in a really cool way. And we're figuring out distribution for that right now. The other film is the one that, that Lindsay has been working on about Ken over the the last several years and his life's struggle to figure out how to best address this issue and how to how to live and, and exist in a world that doesn't seem to be feeling the impending impacts that, the way that he is seeing them. It's Lindsay's film, and, and I've come on as as a producer there to help finish filming and, and do what I can to, to get it out, to get, finish it up and get it out to the world. And so, yeah, I'm going to be heading out to Washington for Ken's trial and, and shooting that with her. And it's so compelling. (laughs) Um, just the, the parts that she has finished over the past few years. And Ken is such an interesting, wonderful human, and as a as a character framed by this issue, uh, it's just it's fascinating to watch because I think he embodies what so much of us struggle with who are who are aware of bigger picture issues and and long term climate ramifications.
0: It's sometimes difficult as a filmmaker to sort of understand the perspective of your target audience for absolutely. for a story right <laughs> yeah, <absolutely. laughs> um. That said, you know, I definitely feel like there is this shift in the filmmaking world as far as how we cover the climate change issue. Um, and, you know, just a few years ago, uh, you know, I feel like sort of the, the standard model for like a climate change film was to um, sort of present the issue, explain how dire it is, show the science um and then present you know the, the 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 ways that that you the audience you know all you people yeah. who watch this film like this is what you can do to help and we really can solve this problem and like right. you know here are all the great solutions that we have um get involved which you know that message like it doesn't feel genuine anymore right. um and you know what does feel genuine are these these stories uh about you know, individuals or groups of people, um, and, and just showing like what they are doing and showing their sort of struggle, um, to, to, to deal with this crisis. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that really resonates with me, right? Because I can connect with that. I, I can relate to that. You know, uh, yeah. that, that's a struggle that, that, that I'm going through as well. Um, yeah, absolutely. That old model feels delusional at this point. Like we know what's happening. <laughs> Yeah,
1: we're so far beyond that. It's more of an existential question at this point.
0: I'll just say that, you know, I mean, I think that the film that you worked on with with Josh Fox, how to let go of the world and, and love all the things that climate can't change. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's a really beautiful expression of that idea. I feel like um, it's not like one particular character. It's a whole group of characters that. Uh-huh. um that, that you guys followed but it's sort of it, it's it's almost like a blend of those two <laughs> models right it's like yeah. you know you start off with like oh my god this issue is so dire and it's so overwhelming um and I just feel like giving up and then like the whole rest of the film is sort of like showing all these individual stories and showing how people are sort of working to to you know to forward this cause um, and sort of using that as inspiration to sort of not give up and, and to continue fighting, um, despite how dire it seems.
1: Right. And nobody's saying, yes, we can fix this, but but more like this is what we need to hang on to to make it through what we have coming.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I was, I mean, before I even saw that film, I was Mm -hmm. just, like, the title itself, like, stood out as, like, okay, (laughs) I need to watch this film. Like, this totally... Fits into like the framework in my mind of how I've been thinking about the climate change issue, and you know over the yeah. past couple of years. Um, awesome, uh, really really amazing work on that film. I actually had the opportunity to hey. to, to see to see that film um, when Josh came through Boise, um, oh, where cool, I live, yeah. touring with it. So I got to um, to meet Josh uh, briefly awesome. and, and see the screening here, which is which was really amazing. You know, so uh, n- normally, normally these are questions I ask at the beginning of an interview, but I kind of wanted to jump into like sort of the meat of it sure. right at the beginning. But I- I'm curious about sort of your path towards becoming a documentary filmmaker. So you and I met a few years back at the International Wildlife Film Festival. And, you know, the thing that sticks out in my mind from, you know, the few brief conversations we had was uh, like some stories that you told me about this amazing adventure that you had uh, years ago. <laughs> um in south america uh hiking across the andes well that was before you sort of took this path towards becoming a filmmaker i mean yeah. how how did that sort of happen and like could you have envisioned like your sort of life going in this direction you know maybe like 10 years ago
1: um 10 years ago 10 years ago i was in the middle of that hike um, <laughs> so for your listeners that don't (laughs) know what that was i spent two years um with my partner at the time greg backpacking the length of the andes it was a 7800 mile hike (laughs) um most of it was bushwhacking and (laughs) um or scrambling but um yeah it it was uh it was toward the end of that hike that i that i realized that this this filmmaking documentary path was what I wanted to, to, you know, pursue. Um, I had, I had my, my background before that was in visual communications. So I was doing, um, a lot of design work for, for nonprofits and environmental organizations and then also, um, environmental education. Um, I got a degree in earth and planetary science and kind of went the education route there doing, um, environmental ed, outdoor ed, um, kind of stuff. And, and that led to wilderness therapy, working with at risk in quotes, air quotes, um, kids going on backpacking trips and like being their their guides and instructors. And, um, but all, all toward this end of trying to encourage people to value, big picture thinking in terms of the the earth and the environment and their place is part of that. Um, whether that be through education or through printed material or, you know, and on the, this massive hike, um, I I started thinking about doing photojournalism and, and, and that approach to it. And then it was, it was kind of the slow motion epiphany of, Wait a second. Documentary filmmaking is using all of those things in one medium to reach a large audience and and not tell people what to do, but communicate directly with their hearts. And I think that's what makes people start to do things differently. The way to change people's outlook and way of being isn't to tell them to change their outlook and way of being. It's to connect with them. And film has this incredible power to to do that, to tap right into people's emotions and make contact with what they really value. So it's it's like this magical Trojan horse kind of medium. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's
0: awesome. <laughs> um. <laughs> um.
1: <laughs> 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 and it uh, combined everything I loved doing. It combined being in the field and, and art and education and dorking out over... environmental research and just everything that I was into and felt like I was competent at in into one under one umbrella once that clicked for me it was kind of like oh duh (laughs) why didn't I why didn't I see this sooner um but I I think a large part of that was that I I didn't think of filmmaking as like a viable career because it's not like a super clear path by any means, everybody in filmmaking understands that there's not like a track you set yourself upon and follow. It's it's kind of a make your own way and and figure out what you want to do and do it kind of kind of job. I think that's why I was kind of late to the party there.
0: Yeah, but, I can I can totally relate to that. And and you know I I think you're definitely right that there's there's no sort of like set track. It's it's like everybody who succeeds as a filmmaker. I feel like. Has a different story about what that track looks like and and how mm-hmm. you know what that path, um, h- how they sort of made that path and 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 sort of got to the point they are. I mean, it's yeah, mm-hmm. no two stories are are sort of alike. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm curious, you know, I mean, you know, you had this this amazing opportunity to to work with Josh Fox on his latest film, sort of part mm-hmm. three of his Gasland trilogy, which you know for for somebody that is you know in this profession like that works in this space as as a filmmaker focused on conservation issues gasland and and josh fox's work are, are sort of it's 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 like an awesome example of like a a, a film that had a really dramatic impact um yeah. on on an yeah. issue you know i mean gasland really brought the the fracking and, and natural gas extraction issue into sort of the public light in a way that that it really wasn't um, beforehand people often ask me sort of like what's what's the power of a film really like how can mm-hmm. you really measure that impact and like how do you really know that you're you know having an impact on people and like that's something that i struggle with right and it's it's difficult to measure the impact that a film has right but mm-hmm. you can take a film like gasland that had a really obvious and dramatic impact and sort of point to that as an example um, and to say, like, see, look, like, this medium can really, like, really does have the potential to have a, a really dramatic impact in a way that that other mediums don't. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I say that just to kind of put it into context of, like, the fact that you got this opportunity to, to um, you know, be a producer on uh, Josh Fox's film, I mean, that... In in my mind, that means you made it. I mean, you're you're at the top of the, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. I mean, so I mean, I guess I guess I'm sort of wondering, like, how did you get to that point? I mean, how did how did you meet Josh initially, and like, how did that um, how did that whole process yeah. start?
1: Uh, well, we met in a gondola <laughs> over a bottle of champagne. Um, so I was at uh, Mountain Film in Telluride. I had made a film uh, called Backyard about uh the, the human costs um of fracking followed several different people's stories and from very different backgrounds and in different states, all struggling with the impacts of, of fracking on their lives. It was at Mountain Film as they were beginning to think about making making their film Dear Governor Hickenlooper. It was about fracking in Colorado, and they, they were kind of using it as an example of uh, these stories they wanted to collect to make that film. Um, but anyways, it, it was there the same year that Gasland 2 was at was at Mountain Film, and I went to the Gasland 2 screening, was in line to take the gondola back down to town after that screening, and Josh was a few people in front of me in line, and I thought, well, this is this is silly. I should just um, I should just jump in that gondola because I'm sure we know tons of the same people, and I would love to talk to him. And so I did, and um, we sure enough like got to talking and had a ton of overlap and people and and big picture concerns and philosophies and kept hanging out throughout that festival. Um, stayed in touch, and then a couple years later, he was just starting to work on this film and wanted to come out to Colorado to shoot results of massive wildfires outside of Fort Collins. Um, didn't have many filmmaker connections in the West. We got in touch. Like he, he wanted to do a few days shoot about these wildfires. I said, I'd love to come on a second camera. And he said, great. We met up, we shot about on wildfires for a few days and things were going really well. We started following other stories that were, that were developing. We we kept, you know, as you do when you're making a documentary film, talk to people and they say, Oh, you need to go talk to this person. You need to go check out this. So we were just kind of following all of those leads. Um, and it was just the two of us. And I told him that this idea that he, of this film that he was making was kind of what made me decide that I wanted to be a filmmaker in the first place. Um, when I was in the Andes, the film I wanted to make that set me off on this path was this idea of canary communities and and I mean this was two thousand six to two thousand eight so it was this was before Inconvenient Truth came out um but I was seeing these communities that had been displaced by climate change already, like communities that had relied on glaciers for their for their water supply, and the glaciers had had dried up, had melted. So there were all these abandoned towns that that we were seeing walking through the Andes and there were already all these people that were profoundly impacted by climate change that nobody was talking about, nobody was hearing about. And that's the film that I wanted to make that made me decide to be a filmmaker. And so here I was working with Josh and he's essentially saying he wants to make this film about communities that have already seen and felt the impacts of climate change. It was a little like, oh my God, I need to I need to make this film with you. And I, I pretty much told him that. And I, I was like, I don't know what your plan is. I don't know what your team is. I don't know what what uh, you have going, but I I I want to stay involved in this film in, in some capacity. Um, and he basically said, well, I need a producer. You seem to be producing pretty well uh let's see how this goes <laughs> so we, we kept shooting for a few weeks we ended up buying this crappy little car off on, on Craigslist so we could just keep going and shot all around the west shot several stories about wildfires um beetle kill up in Wyoming and then kept going and filmed at the in the Bakken area in North Dakota we were at the the three affiliated tribes Preservation area in North Dakota, and got stories about how the the industry had just completely fractured the tribes, and just all the the corruption going on there. And these incredible stories, a lot of them didn't end up in the film, just because I mean, as you know, it's already over two hours. We had to cut a lot of incredible stuff. But yeah, I, after that point, I, I basically I've been living in Bozeman six and a half years. And we decided separately and simultaneously that I kind of needed to move to New York to just make this happen. So I packed up my life there, which was extremely difficult. Um, I had an amazing community and, and relationship and my whole, I had a fantastic life in Postman. But felt like I needed to see this through. So moved out to New York and just went full bore on this film for the next couple of years.
0: I can imagine that that that'd be a difficult transition. I mean, I've I've spent a fair amount of time in New York City, but it always yeah. it always it's always a place where I'm like, oh, it was, it was nice to visit here, but I don't know if, right, I, right. if I'd want to live here permanently.
1: Right? <laughs> yeah, and coming from like the most beautiful little town in the mountains, um, yeah, I mean, it was it was uh, an adjustment, but the other side of that coin is just because I I did want to focus more on human stories and social justice kind of stuff. You know, there's a heck of a lot more opportunity to find those stories in New York than in Bozeman. Um, Every day I'm reminded how interesting and wonderful and fascinating people are. Just so many people, so many stories, so much history, and and the human system that exists here is just endlessly fascinating. So as much as I miss, miss the mountains, I am... Occupied, at least for now, but I don't know, the daily reminder of how incredible humanity and culture is.
0: (laughs) That's, I think, a noble task, right, is to sort of be there in, in a city like New York that seems so separate from the natural world. But to be there sort of both reminding people, but also sort of showing, you know, using human stories to show that that there are these connections, no matter where you are, right, between the natural world, conservation efforts, and human communities, right?
1: Yeah, we are the natural world. We are of it and (laughs) part of it. And I think it's important to, to see ourselves that way, that we are not separate from the natural
0: world. Absolutely, I, I couldn't agree more, and um I, th- I think that's I think that's a good note to sort of uh, uh, wrap things up here. So I will um say thank you for, um, for coming onto the show and and sharing all of these amazing stories. Um I mean I really appreciate your willingness to sort of share this really crazy and intense story about you know what what happened to you when you were arrested in North Dakota. Uh, I'm sure it's not an easy experience to sort of recount over and over again. But um, I I appreciate your willingness to do that because I I think it's important for people to hear that. Right. Um, So, yeah. Thanks a lot um, for sharing your perspective. Uh, It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. All right. That was our conversation with filmmaker Dea Schlossberg. It's clear in talking with Dea that she has taken on this role as a spokesperson for the climate change movement with extreme reluctance. However, it's also clear just how passionate she is about her work. Dea was thrown into a very unexpected situation, which, although it was traumatizing and, and crazy, it also gave her a platform to talk about the issues she cares about, and she has certainly not shied away from taking advantage of this opportunity. I'm super excited to check out both of the new films that Daya is working on currently and we'll have information and links on the show notes page to help you stay informed about these projects as well as the issues that Daya is covering. These show notes can be found at wildlensinc.org/eoc107. That's w i l d l e n s i n c.org/eoc107. If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, you you can subscribe to the show via iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice. You can also leave us an honest rating and review on iTunes, which really helps us reach more people and spread awareness on the topics that we cover here. Just search for Eyes on Conservation in the iTunes store or follow the link on the show notes page. The Eyes on Conservation podcast is a production of Wild Lens. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolski. Our theme music is by The Humidors.